How y'all doing? It's been a few weeks since we've been here in this venue, so it's good uh, to be back. We want to call your attention, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We started several weeks ago looking at uh, the events surrounding the life of Samuel, and uh, tangentially, we're going to be looking at uh, events surrounding King Saul, and that's the topic for today, uh, and later on around King David. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Samuel's life is the fact that he serves as a bridge between the judges and the kings. Uh, uh, he, he is recognized by most as being the last judge of Israel, and he was the one uh, through whom God appointed both the first and the second kings of Israel. We're dealing right now with his relationship with the first king of Israel, with Saul. Uh, we, we've already uh, gone over uh, the call to Saul, how that comes about, uh, and how uh, Saul reacts to the call, and the instruction that Samuel gives uh, to Saul about uh, how things will go if he uh, is obedient to God. And that's key to what happens in our lesson today, because uh, when you get your notes, you're going to see that uh, the title of this week's uh, study is Saul Disappoints, because that's what happens. Saul disappoints. Uh, we're going to read the first 15 verses of the 13th chapter of First Samuel. Saul was a young man when he began as king. He was king over Israel for many years. Saul conscripted enough men for three companies of soldiers. He kept two companies under his command at Michmash and in the Bethel Hills. The other company was under Jonathan at Gibeah in Benjamin. He sent the rest of the men home. Jonathan attacked and killed the Philistine governor stationed at Geba, Gibeah. When the Philistines heard the news, they raised the alarm. The Hebrews are in revolt. Saul ordered the reveille trumpets blown throughout the land. The word went out all over Israel. Saul has killed the Philistine governor, drawn first blood. The Philistines are stirred up and mad as hornets. Summoned, the army came to Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines rallied their forces to fight Israel. Three companies of chariots, six companies of cavalry, and so many infantry, they looked like sand on the seashore. They outnumbered and in deep, uh, I'm sorry, they went up into the hills and set up camp at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. 
When the Israelites saw that they were way outnumbered and in deep trouble, they ran for cover, hiding in caves and pits, ravines and brambles and cisterns, wherever. They retreated across the Jordan River, refugees fleeing to the country of Gad and Gilead. But Saul held his ground in Gilgal, his soldiers still with him, but scared to death. They waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel failed to show up at Gilgal, and the soldiers were slipping away right and left. This is the key verse. So Saul took charge. You see that? You can write, if it's, if it's your Bible, don't write, don't write in anybody else's Bible. If it's your Bible, write, that's where he messed up. <clears throat> So Saul took charge. Bring me the burnt offering and the peace offering. He went ahead and sacrificed the burnt offering. No sooner had he done it than Samuel showed up. Saul greeted him. Samuel said, what on earth are you doing? Saul answered, when I saw I was losing my army from under me and that you hadn't come when you said you would and that the Philistines were poised at Michmash, I said, the Philistines are about to come down on me in Gilgal and I haven't yet come before God asking for his help. So I took things into my own hands and sacrificed the burnt offering. That was a fool thing to do, Samuel said to Saul. If you had kept the appointment that your God commanded, by now God would have set a firm and lasting foundation under your kingly rule over Israel. As it is, your kingly rule is already falling to pieces. God is out looking for your replacement right now. This time he'll do the choosing. When he finds him, he'll appoint him leader of his people. And all because you didn't keep your appointment with God. At that, Samuel got up and left Gilgal. What army there was left followed Saul into battle. They went into the hills from Gilgal toward Gibeah in Benjamin. Saul looked over and assessed the soldiers still with him, a mere 600. Okay? All right, let's, let's talk about this. Sometimes things start off real good and then they turn sour really quickly. And that is the case with Saul. Everything started off so well. God sends Saul precipitously into uh, the city where Samuel is dwelling. Samuel has this dinner prepared and waiting for Saul because God has already told Samuel that the one who's going to be king is going to come to you. Uh, he has all of the elders of Israel there to greet him. He sits at the place of honor. Samuel gives him this prophetic word that you're going to be king over all of Israel. Uh, Saul is imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit and he dances with the prophets. 
everything started off so well. But here's what happens with Saul. At some point, Saul forgot how he got to be where he was. And when we forget how we got to be where we are, bad things can happen to us. There are one, two, three, there are six things that I want you to see in this passage. That's, that's why I read the whole passage first. There are six things that we want to draw out of this passage. Number one, when we have no sense of our calling, we're headed for trouble. When we have no real appreciation of what God has called us to do, we are headed for trouble. Samuel could not have been more clear to Saul about what he was called to do. The problem was Saul, for whatever reason, did not embrace what Samuel told him. He made the instructions very clear. And the primary instruction he gave was not that you're going to be king, but that everything will be fine if you obey God. But Saul forgot all about obedience. Saul's sense of his calling became fuzzy. He lacks a deep sense of what it was he was actually called to do. Have you ever been in a situation where somebody put you in a, in a position and you got a title, but you don't know what you're supposed to do? <laughs> Have you ever been placed in an office and given a desk and a chair and a typewriter and a pad and a pencil and said, get to work, and, and, and you said, okay, and they walked out and you said, nah, what am I supposed to do? What, what, what's next on the agenda? This seems to be what, what has happened to Saul. He's not clear as to what he's supposed to do. Now, somebody can say, well, let's be fair. He's the first. He's the first king of Israel. So maybe he didn't have a clear understanding of what it meant to be the king of Israel. But Samuel did tell him, you obey whatever God has told you to do. So if he, if he didn't know nothing else, he knew that he was to be obedient. Somewhere along the way, Saul forgot about his calling. He became unclear about his calling. And when we're not sure what it is that we have been called to do, we get into trouble. Relate that to us. As Christians, we all have been called. I'm not suggesting that all of us have been called to full-time ministry. I'm not suggesting that all of us have been called to some missionary endeavor. But all of us have a general sense of why God saved us. 
God saved us. He, he brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He saved us so that we could escape the, the, the perils of hell and eternal damnation, eternal estrangement from God. We know to what we have been called. We have been called to salvation. We've been called to deliverance. We have been delivered from something bad to something good. And with that salvation, we have a responsibility. Somebody saying, well, what responsibility is that? Uh, you don't remember? Matthew chapter 28. Jesus on the hillside getting ready to go back to his father. All power has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore. And as you go, make disciples. As you go, teach men and women whatsoever I have commanded you. As you go, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And here's my promise to you. If you do that, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Every Christian ought to have a sense of his or her calling. You ought to have a sense of what it was that you were saved from. Anybody here ever think about what your life would be like if the Lord had not come into your life? Or do we just sing, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, where would I be? He kept my enemies away. He made the sun shine through the cloudy days. He rocked me in the cradle of his arms when he knew I had been battered and scorned. Have you ever considered what life would be like had not the Lord saved you? And do you recognize that with your salvation, with your new life, you have a charge? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When we claim the title Christian, but forget what it means to be a Christian, we get into trouble. Christians love without limit and without restriction. Christians forgive those who have wronged them, regardless of how deep the hurt is. Christians seek to serve, not to be served. This is what we have been called to do. And you can tell those who know their call and those who are fuzzy about their call those who are fuzzy about their call meander around the church. They just wander, hither and yon, to and fro. No real agenda, no real plan, just, just moving. I want to hang around good folks. So, so they come around 
the church. But those who know their call, they do more than meander. They have an assignment. They have responsibilities, and they seek to meet their assignment. Saul's first problem was that he had no real sense of his calling. Point number two, God's commands serve as a test of our faith and obedience. God's command to Saul was simple. Whatever I tell you to do, you do. And if you do what I tell you to do, everything will turn out fine. Saul's problem was he looked at the time, the timing, and he decided that I've waited long enough. Have you ever gotten to a place where, where, where you took something to the Lord? You've got a burden, you've got a problem, you've got a, a family problem, a, a child problem, a friend problem, a job problem, a money problem. You took it to the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm leaving this lovingly in your hands. And then five minutes later, you're trying to figure out how you're going to fix. Some of us have, have good intentions. We, we want to put it in God's hands, but we have trouble leaving it in God's hands. We say the right stuff. Lord, I trust you. I believe you. I know that you're going to make a way out of no way. But then we take it all back and we try to do it ourselves. I told you, the, 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 the most important phrase in that whole passage that I read is when it says that Saul decided to, to take things into his own hands. It's a test of your faith and of your obedience that you are to wait however long it takes. Now, Samuel said to Saul, I'll be there in seven days. Wait seven days. Now, somebody's going to say, well, the text says he waited seven days. Well, if you read the commentaries that go along with the text, what they will say is he waited six days and so many hours. But he did not wait the full seven days. Anybody know something about that? You, 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 you tried to wait, and, and you waited as long as you felt like it was appropriate. And what is it that would have caused Saul to stop waiting? What he saw. Read the text. It says that while he waited, he saw his soldiers slipping away. As he went, every day he waited, he woke up and looked, and there were fewer soldiers. Where's Joe? Oh, Joe left last night. Where's Tim and John? Uh, they, they let out first thing this morning. He, he, he saw the, the, the numbers 
getting smaller. And understand, he was already heavily outnumbered by the Philistine forces. He was outnumbered with soldiers, and the soldiers that the Philistines had had far greater weaponry than the Israelites had. And so what do you do when faith runs up against reality? What do you do when God says, wait, and waiting seems to move you farther and farther from where you want to be? Well, if you like Saul, you'll say, I waited as long as I could. Because that's what he tells Samuel when Samuel shows up. He said, he said what is it that you're doing? He said, well, look, I waited. I waited as long as I could. But you didn't show up like I thought you would. And I needed to do something about the situation. So I took matters into my hands. I said this to the Sunday school teachers last night. Initiative is good in some circumstances. But initiative is bad when initiative means that you're being disobedient to the will of God. It's one thing when you take the initiative when there is no clear command in place. You say, well, I'm, I'm led to do this. It's something else when you've been told what to do and you've decided, I've got a better idea. I'm going to do something different. I'm going somewhere with this. It's one thing to, to, to say, I don't know how to handle a situation. It's another thing when the Lord has told you how to handle a situation and you, you decide, no, I don't like that. I'm going to do something else. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that use you and persecute you. What's unclear about that? What you can say is, I don't like it. But you can't say that you don't know what it is that you are supposed to be. So why, why would you take initiative to do something else when you've been given clear instruction? Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who's wronged me. Seven surely ought to be enough, right? Jesus says, no. Try 70 times seven. We have been given clear instruction and we simply choose to substitute God's instruction with our own initiative because our own initiative seems right to us. Have you read the proverb that says there is a way that seems right? But the end thereof leads to death. Have you read what the prophet said? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require? Quiz time. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God, God's commands serve as a test of our faith and obedience. And sometimes we fail the test because 
we want to insert our own initiative in the place of what God has called us to do. Number three, and this goes right along with number two, liberties are also a test of our faith and our love for God. What do, I, what do I mean by liberty? All of us are free moral agents. Correct? As free moral agents, we think we ought to be able to do anything and everything that we want to do. Well, here's the problem with that. When God has told you what to do, he expects you to discipline your liberty within his will. 1 Samuel chapter 10 Verse 7, Samuel gives this instruction to Saul. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires. For God is with you. Now, what, what is it that, that I'm referring to? Go back and look at the passage again. Look, look at the top of the passage. Saul was a young man when he began as king. He was king of Israel for many years. Saul conscripted enough men for three companies of soldiers. He kept two companies under his command at Michmash and in the Bethel Hills. The other company was under Jonathan. Everybody, everybody know who Jonathan is? Jonathan is, is his son. Saul's son, at Gibeah in Benjamin. He sent the rest of the men home. Verse 3, Jonathan attacked and killed the Philistine governor stationed at Geba or Gibeah. Jonathan attacked. Jonathan attacked. What does Saul do? Nothing. He stays still. He takes no action whatsoever. Understand, it was always the intention that the enemies of Israel be moved out of the land. From the time that God promised the land to the Israelites and told Joshua to go into the nation, their task was simple. Give the people who live there two choices. Either become our servants or die at our hands. One or the other. And Joshua and the children of Israel went in, and at first they did well. But after a while, Joshua decided we've had enough war. We've had enough killing. I don't want to kill any more people. And instead of killing folk, he made deals with folk so that they could continue to dwell in the land. And over the generations, these nations became enemies of Israel. And among them were the Philistines. And so part of Saul's assignment as king was to establish an independent, sovereign nation within this land. And Jonathan took a company of men and attacked because he recognized that that was the overall charge of Israel. Saul did nothing. Saul held 
but did not attack. Sometimes when we have liberty, we have to recognize that liberty calls us to responsibility. You're free. Everybody in here is free to do whatever you want to do. You, we, we talk about love and serve and forgive. You know you're free not to love, right? You're free not to serve. You're free not to forgive. But you must also know that there are consequences that accompany every decision that you make. You can choose not to love. There are consequences for not loving. You can choose not to forgive. There are consequences for not forgiving. You can choose not to serve. There are consequences for not serving. So our liberty is, to use the term that is used in the text, our liberty is conscripted to the authority that God gives to each of us. If we are truly the disciples of Christ, then we act in the liberty that comes from Christ. And liberty does not mean recklessness. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 for a quick second. Starting with verse 16. He came to Nazareth, he being Jesus. He came to Nazareth where he had been reared. As he always did on the Sabbath, he went to the meeting place. When he stood up to read, he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, God's spirit is on me. He's chosen me to preach the message of good news to the poor, sent me to announce pardon to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the burdened and battered free, to announce this is God's year to act. Jesus says that the purpose in his coming, and he's quoting the prophet Isaiah when he, when he says this, he says the purpose of his coming was to set us free. So if we are in Christ, we have been set free. But with our freedom, there's an expectation of accountability and responsibility. You can't say that I'm free and then not do what Christ said do. And then say that, 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 that you are a disciple of his. Disciples love, disciples serve, disciples forgive. Disciples do missionary and ministry outreach in order to meet the needs of those who have less than. And they do it gladly. They recognize the overall responsibility that is ours. And the liberty that they use is the liberty in how they approach doing the task that God has assigned to them. It's not liberty to do nothing. It's liberty to do something that pleases God. I hope that makes sense to you because I just said something. It is not liberty to do nothing. It is liberty to do something that fulfills God's call on your life. Liberty is as much a test of our faith in God as is his commandment. 
God doesn't have a ready-made answer for every little situation. There are situations that come up in your life for which there is no text that specifically speaks to that situation. Well, I don't know what the Lord wants me to do. Yes, you do. You do. You don't have to have a ready-made text that fits every little situation. You have enough of, of, of an understanding of what God wants to know what he's pleased with and what he ain't pleased with. I'm firmly convinced. Y'all know when y'all ain't done right. Ain't nobody got to tell you you ain't do right. You know. You feel it. God whips you sometimes. Amen. You know. You, you put on a brave face and act like you don't know. But you know. Liberty is a matter of faith. What you going to do with the freedom? When, when, most of the time when I was growing up, there was always an adult in the house. My, my grandmother lived with us until she died. She was, I was 19 when she died. Most of the time, there was, there was an adult in the house. But every now and then, both mom and daddy were at work, and grandmother had someplace else to go. And once my brother left the house, he was six years older, it was just me and my sister at the house. Now, when we were in the house by ourselves, we were free. We could do anything we wanted to do. Uh, but we had some sense. You know what we figured out? With all that freedom we had, one of them three adults gonna be coming home in a little while. And when they come home, if things are not the way they are supposed to be, we gonna have to give an account for what happened. God has made you free. God has made you a free moral agent. God has set you free. God has set you free from the sin that burdened you, from the sin that condemned you. You are free. And with your freedom, you literally can do anything. Understand this. There is a day of accounting. There is a day when God is going to ask, what did you do with what I gave you? And each of us is going to have to give an account. Number four goes right along with number three. Urgencies are not an excuse for disobedience. Samuel comes up and Saul has just offered the burnt offering. And Samuel says, what are you doing? I believe he said something else, but <laughs> what are you doing? And, 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 and Saul said, well, what happened was the Philistines were, were, were moving and I was losing my army and I, I waited as long as I could. What he essentially said was the urgency of the moment 
prompted me to do what I did. Urgency is not an excuse for disobedience. I told you to wait. I've told you before, uh, my mother left me one day at school and said, I'm going to be late coming to get you. Uh, but when I come, I want you to be sitting right here. And I said, well, how long are you going to be? And she said, if I don't get here till midnight, when I get here, you better be sitting right here. Urgency is not an excuse for disobedience. Sometimes we think that, that situational uh, uh, things cause us to do things, and it's okay. That's how you try to lie your way out of speeding tickets. Police officer pulls you over. Do you know how fast you were going? Well, you see, I wouldn't normally drive this fast, but I was on my way, and I really had to be. What you're essentially saying was the urgency of the moment is my excuse for breaking the law. There's no urgency that calls for us to be disobedient to God. But in fact, it is the urgency that requires more faith. I've received the third notice. They're going to cut off my power. I'm going to come home and flick the light switch and ain't nothing going to happen. The urgency of the moment. They didn't threaten. They're going to come and turn off my water. The urgency of the moment. I know I told them that I would be there, but I got caught up helping my baby do this. The urgency of the moment. Everybody's got an urgent moment. Everybody in here has an urgent moment. Everybody in here ha has an excuse. You got one in your back pocket right now. An excuse for what you want to do. But it is in the urgent moments that your faith will hold you if you cling to it. What is it that Paul says was, and, and, and the way it's written in, in the King James, it's almost like a passing phrase. For we walk by faith, not by sight. That really wasn't what Paul was talking about, but he throws that in there. We walk by faith, not by sight. It's almost a given because that's what the Christian is supposed to do. The Christian is supposed to see and then look beyond what he sees and see God moving in the situation. There is no situation that is so urgent that God can't resolve it. Now, understand, I did not say that there's no situation that is so urgent that it won't be resolved the way that you want it resolved. That's different. Because all of us have our own ideas about how things are supposed to be fixed. God, if you just do it my way, everything will be fine. God doesn't always do things our way. But our faith is however God fixes it.
it's right. Let's say that, 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 that Saul did wait the full seven days. Let's say that Saul looked at his watch and he knew it's been seven days now. And Samuel hasn't shown up, so I'm going to take this matter into my own hands. I'm losing my army left and right. The Philistines are all around, and we're in a bad way. So I'm going to take this matter into my own hands, and God will understand because of the urgency of the moment. No. Even at that moment, when you have exhausted every avenue that is known to you, you do a disservice to God because what you're saying is God only knows what I know. Think about what I just said. Boy, I'm saying all kinds of stuff today. Good stuff. <clears throat> God only knows what I know. Reverend Charles Nisbet, pastor of Progressive Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia, came here several years ago, about 20 years ago, and, and, and did uh, a revival here. And, and I remember vividly, he talked about uh, the difference between what we know and what God knows, that, that, that God has a perspective that we don't have. He talked about being picked up at the airport and, and driving down the interstate to his hotel. And, and, and he says that, that as we drove down the interstate, I saw different things along the highway. I looked to my left and I saw a church building. I looked to my right and I saw uh, the refinery. I, we came to a curve and I saw this big brown building right there. And then when we came out of the curve, I saw uh, the, the state capitol standing right there in front of us. And when we went into the other curve, I saw the governor's mansion off to the side. He said, but each one of those things I saw as we went along the journey. At one point, I saw this. At the next point, I saw that. At the next point, I saw the other. But then he said, but when we flew into the city, when, 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 when the plane came into the Baton Rouge area and I looked out the window, I could see the whole thing. I didn't see it in bits and pieces. I didn't see a little bit here and a little bit there. I saw the whole thing. He says, and it dawned on me. That's the difference between what I know and what God knows. I know in, now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. But then shall I know, even as I am also known. When we blame urgency for disobedience, what we're actually saying to God is, I know as much as you know. Worse yet, you know as much as I know. What you're saying is, God, your vision ain't no better than mine. So I can substitute my judgment for your judgment because we both see the same thing. God says, well, you see what you see, but I see so much more than you see. We can't use urgency as an excuse for disobedience. Number five, we're almost through, just five and six. Number five, 
God's judgment may be pronounced long before its consequences are apparent. Look back at verse 14. We'll start with verse 13. That was a fool thing to do, Samuel said to Saul. If you had kept the appointment that your God commanded by now, God would have set a firm and lasting foundation under your kingly rule over Israel. As it is, your kingly rule is already falling to pieces. God is out looking for your replacement right now. So, in verse 14, Samuel announces that Saul, your kingdom, is coming to an end. But according to scriptural record, Saul actually reigned for 40 more years after that. 40 more years before his kingdom was actually done. In fact, there were situations where David could have taken Saul's life, and David chose not to and prolonged Saul's administration as king. Here's my point. Somebody here thinks that because God ain't done it yet, he ain't going to do it. That's a dangerous way to think. It's a dangerous way to live. When God says it, that's it. It's done. It may not happen in, in what you think is a timely fashion, but it's already happened. You know how I know? Because the Bible says so. That's how I know. Did you know that Satan is a defeated foe? Did you know that Satan has been defeated for about 2,000 years? And if you really want to talk about it, Satan was defeated in the Garden of Eden. For in the Garden, God said that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. So from Eden to Calvary was a long time. And Satan did a whole lot of stuff in that time. But what Satan didn't realize was in all the stuff that he did, he was a defeated foe. Certainly at Calvary and, and when Jesus rose from the grave on that Sunday morning, Satan was a defeated foe. Do you think that means Satan leaves you alone? Then why do you keep saying the devil made me do it? <laughs> the devil got into me. Satan still prowls around. The scripture says he's like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Prowl as much as he wants. He's beaten. He's defeated. Now that's good news if you embrace it. Because God said it. So Satan is already defeated. Just takes a little while for, 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 for the effect to take place. 
When I was a kid, I did a lot of terrible things. One of them was I'd, I'd, I'd shoot lizards. I had a BB gun, and, and, and I would hunt lizards. Uh, you ain't got to look at me like, trust me, your children did some terrible stuff too. <laughs> I hunted lizards, and, 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 and I would shoot the lizard, and the lizard would be dead, but the tail of the lizard would still be wagging. Every now and then when, when I was shearing the, the bushes, I would shear the tail. I told you I did some terrible stuff. I, I, I would shear the tail off the lizard. Now, the tail was severed from the lizard. The lizard would run off somewhere and the tail would still be on the shear, but the tail would move even though it had no life, it would move. When I was a very little boy, my father would take me sometimes and we would get chicken for Sunday, but we'd get live chicken, yeah. not, not store-bought chicken. You, there, there was a place down here in South Baton Rouge where you could get live chicken. You'd pick out the one that you wanted. And, 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 and you tell them this is the one that you want. And, and they would go and they would grab the chicken and they would wring the neck of the chicken and they would pop it. And the chicken would be bouncing around in the yard. Bounce, 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 flop, flop, flop. And I knew it was dead. You know how I knew it was dead? Because the guy had the head of the chicken in his hand. What's my point? My point is just because there's activity doesn't mean that it hasn't already been determined what it's going to be. Satan still acts. Satan still acts up. But Satan's demise has already been declared. The seed of the woman has already crushed the serpent. Christ has already risen to secure our salvation. Satan is a defeated foe, which leads me to this question. Then I'm going to get to number six. Why would you pay attention to somebody who's already lost? Y'all think that y'all are some intelligent folk, right? I certainly think you all are some intelligent folk. Well, tell me, why would intelligent folk listen to somebody who's already been defeated? Because Satan's only power is the power to talk to you. We make the mistake of giving Satan way more power than he actually has. Literally, Satan is Satan. And Satan means the tempter. And that tells you all you need to know about what Satan's power is. Satan's power is to whisper to you. Satan's power is to talk to you. 
Now, if I'm telling you that Satan is already a defeated foe, if I'm telling you that I've got Satan's head in my hand, if I'm telling you that Satan is a tail that's wagging, that's already been severed from the body, then my question is, why would intelligent, thoughtful folk listen to somebody who's already been beaten? James says, resist the devil. And you know what he'll do? It doesn't say that the devil will try to fight back. It says if you resist, if, if you simply say to the devil, no, you know what the devil will do? He'll leave you alone. So we have to recognize that, that, that when God announces something, it may take a long time for it to actually happen, but if God said it, it's going to happen. Number six, and I'm going to leave y'all alone. I'm going to eat now. God works through imperfect, less than ideal people. In spite of the fact that Saul fails, and he does fail, this is only the first half of 1 Samuel chapter 13. There's another half of this. And in the other half of this, in spite of the fact that Samuel announces to Saul that his kingdom has been destroyed, Saul ends up winning the battle. Did you know that? And do you know why? Because God will use imperfect, sinful folk. Now, I don't know how y'all feel about that. But I feel good. Because if God can use Saul, and if God can use Jacob, and if God can use some of the terrible folk that God uses in the scripture, then I feel quite confident that God can use me. I ain't much, but whatever I am, I put it in his hands. And I trust him to do with me what I can't even do for myself.